All right, man. Welcome to the introduction for episode 91 of Crow 777 Radio Podcast. Jason Lindgren is with me. We're going to talk a bit about astrotheology, alchemy, uh, spagyrics, which is the alchemy, the lesser form of alchemy that deals with the plant kingdom. Um, and you'll notice as we get in, there's some underpinning ideas uh, under most of what we talk about here. Um, one of them is the old cliche that we're born naked into a natural world. Uh, the idea that the natural world dictates basically verbatim what's possible here and what's not. Um, the idea of three will come up over and over and again. Another cliche, you need three legs to build a simple stool. Even in sacred geometry, if you have one, you have a point. If you have two, you can draw a line. And by the time you get to three, you can start to make a shape. Um, these ideas are basically encoded, interwoven, and allegorically used in most of what we're going to talk about here. Um, to get back to the spagyrics for a minute, I'll introduce it. I do it a couple times in the show. It's a thing that I've been doing for quite a while because I like to grow things like herbs. Um, it is the lesser form of alchemy that is said to rule over the plant kingdom. Uh, many years ago when I first began doing spagyrics, I was amazed to see that you could break a living thing made in nature, like say the herb oregano, um, down to these three constituent principles explained in alchemy as the mercurial idea, which is spirit, uh, the sulfur idea, which is soul, and also said to be conscious, and then the salt idea, which is the body. Um, these three principles, as I've explained them, the average modern mind probably won't be thinking about what I have just said using the word spirit and soul in the way that I feel it's probably communicated uh, in the idea of spagyrics. But when you start to go at nature in this way, you get a wholly different view of things than you've had previously, at least I did. Um, and then when you begin to process, the, process these things out, separate them, purify them, recombine them, and end up with this wholly more potent, liquid at the end of this process that can be medicinal, can do all these things that are amazing, to me that are amazing. Um, and what you've done is basically taken a thing from nature, broke it down into these predefined constituent parts, purified it, done these steps and these methods, um, and put it back together to get things like tinctures, elixirs, um, and other things that people are maybe familiar with the words. Um, but getting a thing which is basically the basis for most modern medicine, because most modern medicine does have to do with plants, although now that we're into chemistry, that's not wholly true. It's even been said by spagyrists that the pharmaceutical chemistry that brings us chemical medicines uh, typically do the first part of that process, which is the breaking apart um, and ignore the purification and then the recombining or the marriage of the three constituent components identified in the natural system of spagyrics. Anyhow, this is an interesting episode, so let's jump in with Jason and, uh, and cover some interesting material. Here we go, man. Cheers. All right, man. Welcome to Crow Triple Seven Radio Podcast. This is episode 91. Jason Lingren is with me, and we're going to talk about a variety of things here that include ideas like astrotheology, alchemy, and spagyrics. For those who are not familiar, spagyrics would be 
maybe lesser alchemy uh, in in the way we are are shown alchemy. It rules over basically three kingdoms of plant, mineral, and living animals. Uh, Spagyrics is concerned only with the plant kingdom. And uh, we will add into the conversation because the truth is, is that everything we're going to talk about here today come from much older ideas that predate science, that predate modern thinking, to be blunt about it. Anyhow, welcome, Jason. Hello, Crow. And even though we're going to be talking about the sun, the sun certainly is not here in Louisiana right now. Yeah, you guys are getting it, which is a bit ironic because we started to get snow last night and now it's 40-something degrees outside and the snow is gone and it's raining. So uh, what are you going to do, man? As I have asserted so often, I don't accept that weather is forecast. I think it is created and there are plenty of people out there tracking it. Uh, Our good friend Matt Landman, uh, which we may have on again pretty quickly because he's got some kind of astounding things he's been covering, the idea that they're going to block out the sun totally in Tucson sometime this year. He was covering that and also having uncovered documents that show the very beginning of the idea of the chemtrail project. So, And then, of course, there's Patrick Roddy, who we've had on the show, who's out there tracking everything that happens in his part of the world. Anyhow, um, do you have anything to cover? I've got a couple things. No, go ahead and get through yours. All right. My latest talk, I was invited by a YouTube channel called MIGMAG. Uh, That would be M-I-G, new word, M-A-G, so MIGMAG. I had me on for a talk, and he's got that posted on his channel. Uh, My YouTube channel, we came through the winter solstice and the kind of heat and problematic nature of running a YouTube channel seems to have led up. As a matter of fact, on the day of the winter solstice, I picked up 500 subs. Every day subsequent has been between 100 and 200, with a couple of exceptions, where I got 30 subs and lost 29 the same day, that kind of weird pattern that we always see. But anyhow, let's shift back over here to what we're going to talk about. I may introduce more about spagyrics um, or the alchemy of plants uh, in future shows. I think it's crucial that people get a good view of alchemy, the natural ways, the path of the sun, and have a good understanding of it simply because it requires you to think in a different way than we've been taught to think in the modern age of science, in the modern age of scientism theories that never seem to get worked out like gravity, which I guess will be a theory till the end of time. Um, In these older ways, there are concrete outcomes. Uh, It is what it is. You do or you do not. Um, And there's something to be said for that. But even in the language of alchemy and spagyrics and these other things, uh, it requires the modern mind to think in a way that they probably have never thought in their entire life. And when you first read these things, when you read words like spirit or soul or body, you're going to equate it with how we address these things in the modern age. Once you get into it a bit more, you begin to detect the undertone, the natural ideas that are being communicated. Anyhow, Jason, anything more before we jump in? Where are we going to start here? We're going to start with Genesis 1.14. In the beginning. In the beginning, but in this passage, and God said, let there be lights in the firmament of the heaven to divide the day from the night and let them be for signs and for seasons and for days and years. 
So, you know, this is an interesting passage that you've grabbed from the modern Bible that most people will recognize. And for everyone who is Christian out there following whatever version of the Bible they may, we're using the versions that we're using. And we understand that the NIV may be slightly different from the King James, so on and so forth. The Geneva, all these other things. I've read them myself. I understand that there are variances. So we're using these for a basis for conversation. But one of the things that jumps right out here um, is we're already talking about dividing day from night. Um, this is about the sun in our world. And um, then they talk about having the sky for signs. And I would point out that the, the zodiacal constellations we in fact call signs. And they are, in fact, for the seasons. Um, so often on the show, I have pointed out the zodiac is not hokum. Um, it's made to to look like hokum by modern science and other things. But the truth is, if you want to place the sun or any other heavenly, so-called heavenly body, you require the zodiac to do it because you have to know what sign is behind the sun to know where it is, and therefore to mark a season. These things become very important. So just to beat that dead horse one more time, the idea. The idea of using the sky for signs, as it says here in Genesis 1.14, is not hokum. It is not hokum. It is how we place the sun. It is how we mark our seasons. It is basically the clock for this place we live. Anyhow, Jason. So the important thing to even mention right off the bat here is that the sky was the timekeeper for the ancients and can be used all the way up to today if you want some sort of accuracy, right? If you want a reality-based existence, in a recent show we covered time zones, which is an artificial construct. Things like daylight savings time. These are non, excuse me, nonsensical things that have been put in place, and they pull us out of the natural cycles, the circadian rhythm, so to speak. Um, in the same way we've addressed before, the central time zone, one part of the central time zone. And look at look at that. The time zone, the edges on the time zones aren't even straight. So how can that be? But, you know, you could have a time zone with one guy on the western border, one guy on the eastern border. They're roughly 800 miles apart or something like that. They look at their watch and it's the same time for both of them. These are nonsensical constructs. These people will both witness sunrise and sunset at a different time, thereby proving that the artificial time we live our life by is just a construct. It's what it is. And so what we're going to talk about here is a bit closer to reality. And I'm going to set aside the whole matrix argument or the whole argument that there is nothing about this place we live that isn't constructed in some way or a construct of some time. We'll save that for a different conversation, Jason. Right. Now, to address what astrotheology is and where it comes from, we have to understand that a lot of these concepts are what's called Northern Hemisphere concepts. The region of the world where the Holy Land, or what they call the Holy Land, is said to be, is approximately between 25 degrees and 50 degrees north latitude. It's important to look at this because this is the latitude where the familiar seasons of the year in most of these stories that we're all familiar with, that's where it exists, with the shortest day of winter occurring in December and the longest day of summer occurring in June. This region is also the same one that contains the United States, as well as Europe, which is, of course, where a lot of Christians live. So, if you happen to live in this latitude range, then you'll be familiar with the same seasons of the year that the good old Bible that everyone's familiar with will be referencing, and you can go outside any night and see the same stars that will be referenced in any of these stories. 
Right. And as we get into it, Jason, I'll mention once again for the umpteenth time, uh, in my view, uh, the surface reading of these books that I have read so often, many versions of the Bible, many, many versions of the Bible. I can't even remember how many versions I have read through and compared, used concordances. The surface reading, in my view, is not that helpful to the average person. What is hidden below the surface reading is where I believe the real value comes. And in the, the deeper meanings, the encoded meanings, you will find almost all the ideas of alchemy al- Alchemy reside there. You will find that many ideas of how to keep a human body healthy reside there. Many, many things, many levels of meaning. So I just want to get that out there because whenever you cover a thing like astrotheology, people out there will think we're bagging on someone's spiritual tradition. That ain't what we're doing here, and that's not a thing we do on this show. Anyhow, back to you, Jason. Now, I know you've looked at many different versions of the Bible. What did you see different and similar between all the concepts? Because they're all translating from Greek, are they not? Well, that's a whole thing in itself, Jason. There's arguments to be made either way. And, you know, the Vatican will tell you that the the Gospels and things like this came to us in Greek. But guess what? We don't have the original copy. But guess what? We have this other copy we made that represents what the original we lost said. So people can argue any way they want. Um, So what I choose to do is just simply take it at, at face value. We have in our hands what we have in our hands. From version to version, you can find really striking kind of parting of ways and what's being said or what's being communicated. But you've got to realize that if you took a word like heaven, okay, and you had translated it from some old world language like Greek, you might find that the original word used probably more accurately reflects the word sky. So even in the translation of these things, whether the the translators chose to use a word like heaven or a word like sky or any number of things, they could could even say the word firmament um, in some of these editions, you'll find differences. There are whole groups of Christians out there, um, and I was raised Christian. I went to Sunday school as a kid, and even later in life, when I started to make my own way and choose my own spiritual paths, I continually read different versions of the Bible and met lots of people who would say things like, well, the King James or the 1611 is the only version that counts. These arguments, I think, are a little narrow-minded. But what, in fact, you find is anyone out there could pick up a Geneva and NIV, and by the way, the NIV changes the language all the time. Uh, There are revisions done all the time. You can go see many revisions in the NIV and something like the King James and put them next to each other and read a few passages, and I think the average person could answer the question you asked me for themselves. In an overarching answer, the typical stories that are that we're familiar with growing up in the West under the Christian tradition here, they appear in all versions in one way, shape, or form. Well, you actually kind of brought up the point that I was getting at, and that is the concept of the sky, the heavens, and the firmament. Those words get interchanged despite the version of the Bible, would you say? Yeah, well, the the real problem comes in when you grab yourself a concordance and you go back to the what we are told are the original languages. And there's even things like the Lomsa Bible out there that was written by a man who is claimed to have grown up in a place that didn't change much from the time when these tales came to us, these, um, these biblical stories. Um, and he spoke Aramaic, and they lived in the way they lived then. That's the Lamsa Bible basis, and that takes a whole different kind of view of everything, saying things like the, the old passage that people are familiar with, it's easier for 
it's easier for a rich man to go through the eye of a needle than to go to heaven. I know I'm messing that up, guys, but you, you understand what I'm getting at. In the Lamsa edition, he would say that's an idiom and that it can't be translated in the way this is being dealt with. It's a bit like going me going to a different country and saying the words bats in the belfry. Okay, so where I'm at, they don't understand the idiom. They're trying to figure out why are there bats in a bell tower um, when here in this part of the world, we all know that means you're you're implying something. Something's crazy here when you say bats in the belfry. So anyhow, I kind of lost the thread there, Jason. Where do we start? Just that the different versions of the Bible, they probably use interchangeably, I would imply, sky, heaven and firmament. But I was wondering if you happen to notice that yourself. Right. Yeah. So what I was getting at is if you go look at the original languages using a concordance, you'll see what the translators chose to use, but you'll also see all the possibilities if there are additional possibilities. And quite often, to be frank about it, I've thought, well, wait a minute, the one they used to me makes the least sense. And what you're looking at is a group of people doing the best they can moving from one language to another. But anyone who's ever dealt with translations will understand one thing at the basis of it all. There is no way to take complete thoughts and ideas out of one language in many cases and put it into English. Um, sometimes we don't have the words they had, even the ideas. And we find in German things like wonderlust and all these other things, wonderkin, all these words that we've borrowed from them because English doesn't have the equivalent. So, yeah, man, it's when you dig in and you start to look at it critically, you will find that what it comes down to is the perception of the person reading. Right. That's an extremely important concept. It is. Next, let's have an interesting note on clocks, watches, sundials, and any other sort of timekeeper. The hands follow the procession of the sun, and the shadows that would be cast, for instance, if you were looking at a tree and stood there all day watching the shadows cast as the sun passed overhead, it follows the path that would be followed in the northern hemisphere. Interestingly, because that is where the majority of people who would be making such devices have lived. When a clock is pointing straight up with both hands, this would be considered high noon, with the sun being perfectly overhead. So let's just point out a few things here. Um, the thing that that most people don't think about when they're thinking about daylight or where the sun is in the course of a day is angles. See, in the modern age, we're thinking, oh, the sun's right there. That means it's noon. We're not thinking anything about the physical environment that's creating the situation we call high noon. The truth of it is it's all about angles. It is all about angles. Um, in the thumbnail for this episode, I try to communicate this a little bit by uh, in the, pointing out that in the same way an actor changes his costume and plays many different roles, same person playing all these other different roles, and they appear to be a different personage in each role, in each costume they choose, the sun is no different. The sun in December is not the sun in summer. The winter sun is different. And for my money, this is where the whole idea of acting and theater came from in the first place, was watching the sun and watching it change. And in the thumbnail, I kind of point this out with the idea of act one, scene one, this kind of thing. But there is actually a more hidden correlation between even the things we call false news or the false events we, we look at and their relation to the sun. But to get back to the point and shut up so Jason can go on, um, it's all about angles. That's what makes the seasons. That's what makes the different times of the days. It's like cycles within cycles, and it's wholly about the angle you view it from. Well, let's just be uh, very blunt here, Crow. 
angles and degrees are everything. Well, now that you say it, I'm big into spagyrics right now um, because I've always had an affinity for plants. I love growing herbs. I love cooking with them and doing other things. We'll talk more about spagyrics. But there's this idea that the sun would enter a sign or a house of the zodiac, and we'll probably get back to that later, at a certain number of degrees, but it leaves that particular place at 33 degrees, which supposedly, and what I've been reading recently, is attributable to why Masonic traditions have the 33rd degree, because no one can be higher than the sun. So if you are a Mason or the sun in May, um, these kinds of exclamations seem to make sense. And I'm going to get more into that towards the end when I actually do the comparisons with Freemasonry and the rest of astrotheology. So let's get to a definition of astrotheology for anyone who might not be familiar with it. A lot of folks probably are, if you, especially if you listen to this show. You are probably familiar with the work of people such as Jordan Maxwell, Michael Tessarian, David Icke goes into it somewhat. Uh, there's quite a few names out there who have done a lot of this work, and it all kind of comes back to the same thing. It's the concept that the sun is the embodiment of or at least the representative of God. What, whatever God you want to look at, the sun in the sky is a representative, God's sun. So definition of astrotheology, the observation of the heavens as the basis of a religious system or reverence of the heavens. Now, I've seen it described as a holy science, one that combines astrology with astronomy and theology. And in doing so, it shows that all the holy scriptures, or at least the majority of them, along with many other stories that are associated with all this, are representations of one sort or another of the movements of the heavenly bodies in the sky above. Common symbols represented are the sun, the moon, Mercury, Venus, Mars, Jupiter, and Saturn, as well as the 12 houses or the constellations of the zodiac, which I have also heard called Maseroth, but I've also seen arguments over what exactly is meant by Maseroth, which is, from what I understand, only mentioned once in the Bible. Okay, so let's cut to the chase here. In past episodes that you can go back and check out, we have demonstrated, I think, in two episodes that the Catholic Church encoded 12 of its primary saints with basically performing the role of the sun in a given month. And it's really not arguable in my view. There seems to have been a Masonic influence there, um, and they did what they did, and we can demonstrate it at this point. That's what was going on back in the day in the Catholic Church. But why did they do it? Well, from my point of view, and this is just my point of view, the reason they did it was to encode these older nature-based ideas into the new way they were going to begin doing things, uh, which has directly to do with the religion most of us have been grown up with in the West. Um, go back and listen to these episodes, and it's it's beyond compelling. You can pretty much demonstrate what they were doing, and uh, there's even an episode, I think, where we talk and draw a lot from a book called The Devil's Pulpit, uh, where these things are demonstrated. Anyhow, Jason. Now let's get to a concept that we've touched on with some other research and shows we've put out recently. As above, so below. The concept was first laid out in the Emerald Tablet of Hermes Trismegistus. That which is below corresponds to that which is above, and that which is above corresponds to that which is below, to accomplish the miracles of the one thing. 
The Emerald Tablet, also known as the Smaragdine Tablet, or Tabula Smaragdina, is a compact and cryptic piece of the Hermetica reputed to contain the secret of the Prima Materia and its transmutation. And of course, we're getting into alchemy here. It was highly regarded by European alchemists as the foundation of their art and its hermetic tradition. The original source of the Emerald Tablet is considered to be unknown. Although Hermes Trismegistus is the author named in the text, its first known appearance is in a book written in Arabic between the 6th and 8th centuries. The text was first translated into Latin in the 12th century. Numerous translations, interpretations, and commentaries would follow. The layers of meaning in the Emerald Tablet have been associated with the creation of the Philosopher's Stone, laboratory experimentation, phase transition, the alchemical magnum opus, the ancient classical element system, and the correspondence between macrocosm and microcosm. All right. So let me start by saying here, the whole idea of Hermes Trismegistus, uh, in my view, is is he's being attributed as the, the beginner of all this. He's another mythological figure in my book, um, Hermes Trismegistus. Of course, Hermes is just a form of saying Mercury, which relates directly to alchemy. And of course, astrology, Trismegistus means thrice uh, three times great or three times majestic. Thrice majestic, I guess, would be a good translation for it. But what's going on here is we see these older ideas being incorporated. I've read many versions of the Emerald Tablets and another one that's often close at hand. I think it's called the Kabbalion. Um, I've read many versions of these things. And uh, the ideas that are in uh, the Emerald Tablets and the Kabbalion are echoed out through Buddhism, much of the Eastern thinking. Uh, there are several seven principal ideas that are put forth, things like gender, you know, the key aspects of where we live. One of them is gender. Another one is cause and effect or karma. Another one is everything vibrates, nothing is motionless. These ideas, anyone can go look these up. But again, I say often on the show, history is a lie agreed upon. And I think what we're looking at here is again, a personage being brought together where they can show the beginning of a thing, which I think had been going on a lot further back in history. And if we have to give it a name today, that thing is going to be called alchemy. And that's even related to some of the text where he starts talking about you know, transmutation and other things here, prima materia, that is the basis for the natural sciences. And I hate to call them sciences because they don't resemble modern science at all. There are no theories. There, It's basically you do it or you don't. The world works in this ways. The world is made up of these elements. And if you want to achieve these things that you're about, either you succeed or you don't succeed. There is a right way and a wrong way. And that's far different from what we see today where, you know, like I mentioned earlier, we have this theory called gravity. Well, what day do we wake up when this theory called gravity that runs almost every aspect of our scientific lives, when does that become a law? for crying out loud. And that is a real separation between these older ideas that look at a natural environment. And the same way I can sit in a time zone and know my wristwatch is telling me that it's the exact same time as another guy who's hundreds of miles away, that's false. If I was to go to the natural system, I would understand where I am right now, it's actually high noon, or where I am right now, it's actually sunrise. Um, anyhow, back to you, Jason. Interesting concept that gravity is still considered a theory but we still have the second law of thermodynamics, that that one they're absolutely certain about to call it a law. Well, the law of thermodynamics is violated with many of the theories, like the Big Bang theory violates that law. 
So how, how do we come to a place like this? Well, this is the problem with science and scientism. In these older nature-based ways, that can't happen. A thing is known to be or a thing is known not to be. There's no in-between here. In the same way I can look over in a tree and say, hey, man, there's three birds in that tree right now. That's what it is. I'm observing it. Nature is showing me this. In the same way, I can look into a field and say there's one tree right there. As a matter of fact, I recognize that tree as an oak tree. There's no argument to be made here, and that is really the difference. Um, we, we covered quite a bit about the laws of thermodynamics proving things like the Big Bang were nonsensical, um, and this fed into black holes and all these other things that we covered. But you see, this is why I think it's so valuable for people to understand something about about astrotheology, something about the idea of spagyrics or the alchemical alch alchemy of plants, and then again the alchemy, the overarching grand alchemy, which is probably exactly what the Masons are referring to in, in the great work, is almost certainly a, an alchemical procedure in my view. I think we should ask Neil deGrasse Tyson and Bill Nye because they're on television, so they must know what they're talking about, right? Right. But if we ask them, we're going to need a rap beat and we'll have to give them a mic to drop when they're done, because at the end of the day, we recognize them for the entertainers that they are. Oh, snap. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Next, let's talk about darkness and that darkness could be said to be the first enemy of man. The earliest origins of stories begin with the light versus the dark day and night. Man is safe during the day but vulnerable at night in the dark. This is the precursor to pretty much all stories. Good versus evil, light versus dark, day and night. The sun in the sky was the most obvious indication that there was a God looking out for mankind. It is the truth and the light. The sun rises in the east and sets in the west. This truth never changes. You could always just go ask a Freemason if you're uncertain of this. The sun has been compared to a chariot of fire, or called the unquenchable fire, the fire that never dies. It returns every day and is the risen savior. No matter what, the sun will always return to give mankind light and warmth. What better object could exist to personify an existential deity than a giant fireball in the sky? The darkness and the light can also be a representation of balance in life, symbolically represented in the black and white checkerboard floor of Masonic halls or the yin-yang symbol in Chinese philosophy. To use a bad pun here, nothing new under the sun. These are the stories that have been told. We can go back through things like, suppose, Greek mythology. When we're talking about Apollo, we're talking about a personage playing the role of the sun. That's what we're doing. Even in the myths there, uh, it'll talk about Apollo pulling the sun across the sky, things like this. It's no different than the Statue of Liberty. What do you think those spikes on the Statue of Liberty's head are? Those are rays of the sun. These are the same stories that have been told over and over since the beginning of time. The language of these ideas of the sun giving us daylight and then it being dark at night are echoed even back into our language, even into the scriptures of the Bible, which we've covered before, the idea of the vernal equinox. Um, the vernal equinox happens in March. It's what we call spring. Uh, the solstices and the equinoxes are the only true division of time. But the vernal equinox is encoded right into the Bible, as we showed that probably Masonic traditions put it there in conjunction with the Vatican, so that people who were initiated up high enough, probably above the royal arch degrees um, in masonry, would recognize the language was telling them we're talking about the vernal equinox here. As an example, um, the word very 
that we all use, like this is very good or this is very bad, that word is related to the vernal equinox. The reason we got it is because it's an affirming word. And it, it used to be back in the day that a word like very related to the sun, because the sun was going to come up tomorrow in the place it should be at the exact moment it should. It was very precise relating to the word vernal. To take this a step further, the Vatican and Masonic traditions encoded, I think it's the book of John, um, I hope I don't get this wrong, it's been a while since I looked at it, that every time the words verily, verily are used in scripture, anyone initiated to a sufficient level, probably above royal arch degrees, would recognize the words verily, verily are referring to the vernal equinox. In other words, where the sun is in the year encoded in that story. And a lot of people will have a problem with these ideas, but they're there, and there's there's really no arguing them. They've been documented. We know the people who put them there. The Vatican put it there, probably in conjunction with Masonic ideas. But the the problem with even saying that it's Masonic is because it's all really about alchemy at the end of the day, and these ideas precede any history we could possibly look at, which is the very reason I said that you know the idea of Hermes Trismegistus is m most likely a, a mythol a mythological figure who is attributed as the beginning of these things where we really have no idea where the beginning of these things were. They go back so far that it is beyond the view of anyone at this point, in, in my view. Anyhow, Jason. And the reason why we keep mentioning Freemasonry, it's because their rituals and their symbolism all come back to sun symbolism. Even in your early degrees, you're circumnavigating the floor in the path that the sun travels in the sky. And the worshipful master, who is the head of the lodge, sits as the place of the sun. It's all about the path of the sun. But you see, it's not just the Masons. Um, I can point to endless Hollywood movies. You know, you brought up before when I broke down the movie Michael with John Travolta, where he is playing the role of the archangel. What's actually going on is he's playing the, the sun in each month and each zodiacal sign. I have a clip up on my YouTube channel. People can go look at these. This, this story has been told. It's almost in a way sometimes I think it's the only story we ever tell, um, which is overstating it a bit. But that's how frequently this story gets told. And what is the story? The story is that the sun goes through what the Christians would call the acceptable year of the Lord, and it plays its different roles. Again, the winter sun is not the summer sun. Those are you could view them as two different roles. Um, the summer sun is the lion in the sign of the zodiac, you know, the most powerful, um, you know, it's going to be before it begins to fall. Then you get all the way down when he's in the goat or the stable of the goat or the house of the water goat, actually, when it's at its low point, the allegory for fire and ice or hell in so many stories. These stories are not peculiar to masonry. These stories are not peculiar to astrotheology. You can find them in Hollywood to this very day in so many movies that I can't even tell you. And not only that, they all relate to what we currently call alchemy, which are basically a form of science that isn't really a science of the natural world we live in that goes back into the blackness of history that we couldn't possibly see if we wanted to at this point, I would imagine. When the sun is in the constellation of Leo, it's also known as the Lion King. Do you think some little mouse out there might know something that most people don't? Well, even in that movie, Jason, the symbolism that I'm just talking about was there. I mean, at one point, the mean lion, I've forgotten his name, the one with the scar over his eye. Scar? 
Yeah, if that's his name, Scar. Later, he shows up in the movie Hercules. You see, because Hercules is known to wear the Cleonian lion skin. So Hercules is the sun in that month, represented by the lion. And this correlates directly with the saint in the Vatican statuary. And you can recognize him by his club and the Cleonian lion skin. It's just that he's not being called Hercules in this in their representation. But it's the identical story being told yet one more time. The Greeks told it, the Romans told it, the Vatican told it, Hollywood told it, everyone has told these stories. The problem is, is that the average person walking the street doesn't even understand that these stories are being encoded into things. And the average person doesn't understand, well, if they were encoding something, what are they encoding? Well, they're encoding the natural world. Why? Because this is where you are born naked into this system. If you want to achieve something of worth in this system, you better recognize the system that created you naked as a baby into it because it certainly has an influence on your existence. But in the modern age, we've decided that, well, science is all we need. Science has nothing to do with nature. It has no concern for nature and everything about science is man-made, all of it. In the same way time zones are man-made, half the things that come out of science are a corruption. We drive a car, what a great thing. I can drive right now if I want to from Rhode Island to San Diego in three or four days. What an amazing thing to do. But the whole time I'm doing it, corruption is spewing from the tailpipe, a corruption that has no regard for our natural system. So you can kind of see the choices that we've made as people. And while science and scientism pushes hard to make this artificial new reality replace the old natural ways, the natural ways still exist. And that is what we are talking about, the natural ways. So back to you, Jason. Continuing on with our light versus dark, at night, after sun set, the sun travels under the world or to the underworld because it has died and back to the east so it can rise again so that it can be the risen savior. While the sun is in the underworld, darkness and therefore the personification of evil reigns supreme. This gives rise to the concept of darkness referring to bad qualities. For example, referring to a person's dark side or that the bad guys in a lot of stories, movies and, all, and the like were black. Good example would be Darth Vader or even the Prince of Darkness as the ultimate anthropomorphic identity of the enemy of humanity who is always out to get you. So these ideas of astrotheology, which is another thing that Jason just recited here, these ideas are pulled from astrotheology, also points out another thing about the natural system. In the same way, each day we have a night and a day, the year is a bigger cycle of that same event. When the year comes to the high point, the summer solstice of winter, the sun is considered to be falling. Then it falls beyond the fall equinox or the autumnal equinox down to its low point. That is the allegory in the larger cycle of time for nighttime or darkness. Um, it's, uh, the, the low point of the sun is always an allegory for hell, uh, the fire and ice idea coming into play, which we've showed so much about, even using Robert Johnson's song, you know, The Crossroads, proving that first, Robert Johnson is an alchemical construction, and that the ideas that they're expressing have nothing to do with the devil or anything else. They are reflecting where the sun is, and in that song, he's at the low point of the sun. We've, we've pointed out these things, so 
I think the main thing to keep in mind here is the natural system is pointing out that in the same way we have in a 24-hour period, a period of lightness, a period of darkness, if we blow that out to 12 months or what we currently call a year, the same effect is going on where the sun is at a low point, then a high point, then it comes back down. In other words, the idea of light and darkness uh, being reflected in the power of the sun. And of course, the concept of the crossroads is, again, pulling from this symbolism of the cross across the year that is represented by the circle. Right. So the idea of the cross in astrotheology, and it's not just astrotheology, it's going to be in all the old alchemical symbol as well, is if you draw a circle, um, basically what you're doing is showing where the 12 signs of the zodiac that will show you anyone where the sun is in a year, there's a cross put in. So at the top, the the top point of the cross is the winter solstice. The bottom point of the cross is the, the I'm sorry, the summer solstice is on top, winter on the bottom, and then you have your two equinoxes left and right. Um, that is the idea of the crossroads, which is actually embedded right in the symbolic symbol for the sign of Mercury, which we've also demonstrated on this show. Um, we've showed how it's misused all the time to alchemically transmute the world mind into fantasy. Uh, we've pointed out that at the crossroads, if your mind is drugged to the crossroads, you have to make a decision. But Jason is absolutely correct. This goes back to the oldest natural sciences we can see where it is demonstrating simply one thing. There is a division of this year into seasons. The only way we can ever recognize a season when it happens is by understanding equinoxes and solstices. And that's what the cross in this representation means. Let's talk about solar deities now coming forward through history. We could have a sun god or sun goddess. But it's a deity of the sky who represents, of course, the sun or some aspect of it and is normally perceived for the sun's strength, power and life giving properties. Solar deities and sun worship can be found throughout most of recorded history in various forms. The sun is sometimes referred to by its Latin name of soul or by its Greek name of Helios. You know, I've read in a lot of my recent research that the root word for healing is Helios, trying to connect the idea that the root of all healing is in the sun. And as we all know, the basis for almost all medicine comes from plants. And in, in spagyric alchemy or lesser alchemy, this is the idea. Um, it's stated over and over and over in some of the oldest texts I can get my hands on that plants are in fact the carriers of life essence. I have accepted that for many years now, and if for no other reason, I became familiar with the Gerson method where they were simply using the juices from plants to cure cancers that were apparently killing people in other clinical environments. And when I tried it myself and did it myself, I began to understand the truth in the statement that plants are the carrier of life essences. So that's a little word about Helios. But in this part of the world, the sun is almost always masculine and the moon feminine. There are variations in other parts of the world, but for the alchemy or spagyric lesser alchemy that I've been studying for some time now, it's almost always that the sun is masculine masculine and the moon feminine. And uh, in the plant world, from the spagyricist point of view, each type of, say, let's say I had an herb garden, each of the herbs in that garden would be attributable to the time of year. In other words, it would be attributable to the sun or maybe the name of a planet or some
something like this. In the modern age, we think about this thing as astrology hokum, but what they're really communicating to you is that any living thing in this existence that was born naked into this world or sprouted as a seedling, if you're a plant, has some affinity to the time of year it came into existence and has an affinity for where the sun is or the moon is in the course of a day or a year or these other things. So that's the ideas, Jason. Absolutely. And yes, you're right. Most of the solar deities are considered masculine and the moon feminine, although you do see some crisscrossing over of that, mostly because the sun is not necessarily represented by a single deity, but sometimes different aspects of the sun are represented with different deities. Well, it's a strange thing, too, because you can still go into places in the world where they're more accurately breaking down a year with uh, a lunar calendar. Um, the, the root word for month was month, um, because you can get a, a cleaner division of a year using, I think it's 13, 13 months of, I don't know, I'm guessing now because I haven't read it in a while, 28 days. Is that right? I don't know. It's something like that. I think it's 13 months, but you get a cleaner division of the year. Um, in many of the Asian countries, they're still doing this. But you see here in the West, it is all about the sun, baby. That's all there is. Our culture is built on these ideas that are encompassed in astrotheology, um, that are encompassed in alchemy and spagyrics. Because when we're talking about plants, what are we talking about? What allows a plant to live? What nourishes a plant? What allows a plant to grow? Well, it's the sun, is it not? Yes, it is. This is the idea that Helios is the root word for healing um, because plants play such a, a huge role in anyone who wants to try to heal the human body without a pharmaceutical chemical drug, you're going to almost always end up going to diet and plants. Um, that's just the way of things in the world we, we live in. Anyhow, don't let me get too far afield, Jason. Now, there are too many solar deities to just sit here and name, although a few common ones are Ra or Amun-Ra from Egypt, and numerous people have pointed out that this is where, at the end of Christian prayers, they say Amen comes from, with the earliest, in Egypt anyway, being Atum, which is where Adam comes from, A-T-U-M becoming A-T-O-M, the singular or the initial creator, and the later in uh Egypt being Horus. Now we also have Surya from the Hindu, Apollo, Mithra, and the latest being Jesus. All of these figures, as well as the numerous sun gods from all cultures all over the world, are almost always shown with a golden halo or some sort of sun behind them because they are all representing the same thing, the light of the world. Okay, so these these are the points of views from people who have done the astrotheological idea across uh, many religious traditions and many myths that we've had, um, and some of it we can show outright. You know, um, the whole idea that Amen was said after prayers. Um, there's been strong arguments made. To me, these are not the the important ideas. The important ideas is that there is nothing new under the sun. To use the cliche again, these things are reiterated over and over and over. Every myth you've ever heard is echoing the path of the sun. It just is. Um, people who are adept can really begin to show in a meaningful way for the average person to understand what is there. But for the people who aren't interested in myth, let's go to Hollywood. What do you want me to use? I'll use the movie Michael. I'll use the trilogy from Indiana Jones. I'll, I'll use any number of movies to show you that this same story is being told over and over and over as an encoded narrative, below the surface narrative. 
We've covered this before. In the movie Michael that I broke apart to demonstrate that the archangel Michael, played by John Travolta, is actually just being the son in each of the 12 months of the acceptable year of the Lord. Um, when you go at it, the, the, the narrative that everyone in the theater is probably understanding happens over three days or something like that. They take a trip from Chicago down to this other place. They pick up an angel. They have adventures on the way back, and they end up back in Chicago where Michael the Archangel dies and all that. What they don't realize is that is the encoded narrative for the sun in the course of the in the course of the acceptable year of the Lord. And of course, when they get back to Chicago and Michael the Archangel or the sun dies, it's actually just showing you that he's at the winter solstice where the sun goes to its low point, it dies, it stands still for three days, and then lo and behold, it's resurrected and begins to rise up towards the, the vernal or spring equinox again. I, I would recommend anyone go to my channel and look up the work I did on Michael just to get an overarching idea of how often and how currently this is all being encoded ad nauseum to the end of time, I guess. And the reason why you see this repeated is because way back when, however long ago it really was, and quite honestly, I don't think we're really certain how much time has passed, this is what primitive man would have seen in their day-to-day -day lives. They would have seen the sun in the sky, and if they tried to follow the procession, they would see these things repeated over and over and over again, year after year, or what they would come to call a year. So, of course, the earliest stories would start encoding these very concepts of the earliest notions in their day-to-day -day lives. Well, I would take it a step further. I don't even think we need to go back to ancient man. I mean, just let's talk about pre-science. Let's talk about pre-everyone has a watch in their pocket. It's as modern as that. Because the natural world was what told a person, oh, it's time to get out of bed. It's time to take a break and eat some lunch or have dinner or whatever it was. It was the natural environment and the path of the sun that was telling them to do these things. It was telling them that, hey, man, right now it's wintertime. We can't plant. But all of a sudden the sun is now telling us, guess what? It is springtime. We can plant. Praise the Lord we can plant because we were getting mighty hungry and cold. Now we can plant things and get ready for that bounty called a harvest. And by the way, that's going to happen when the sun tells us we're at the autumnal equinox. And actually, for a lot of plants, it'll between the, the solstice and that fall equinox, there's going to be a whole bounty of harvesting going on. This was all measured and tracked by the sun, and it was not that long ago. Um, we can easily mark a point um, as a random grab before everyone had a clock in their pocket. There's a good random grab for how recently this information would have been much more a part of daily life than it currently is with the artificial technological construct that now we now live in. But anyhow, back to you, Jason. Let's talk again, as we have before, about the concept of the triune God, or the Trinity concept. Now, the most common one being associated with the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, or the Holy Ghost. But this does go much further back than Christianity. For instance, in India, from the Hindu, we have Brahma, Vishnu, who was also known as Krishna, and Shiva. Another common trinity, and one of the oldest as well, is Osiris, Isis, and Horus. Then we have one that many may not have thought a lot about in regards to this concept, and that is the alchemical mercury being the spirit, salt the body, and sulfur the soul. So here we see that these ancient, 
ideas. Uh, the last that he stated there are lifted from what we currently call alchemy. Uh, right now I'm doing spagyrics. I'm getting into some very old texts, uh, Paracelsus and other things that have to do with the lesser alchemy of plants called spagyrics. It's called lesser alchemy because this type of alchemy only has to do with dealing with the natural world in plant kingdom only. It has nothing to do with the mineral or living animal kingdom, okay? In spagyrics, the idea of mercury is the spirit of a plant. Each plant has these three principles, mercury, sulfur, and salt. And as Jason said, mercury is considered to be the spirit, non-conscious, uh, sulfur, the soul, which is conscious, and then the salt, which is the body. Uh, how many people have heard people referred to as salt of the earth? This is the reason why, echoing back to these old ideas where the body is the salt of the earth. In these old alchemical ideas, it is brought to us again. In the form of lesser alchemy or spagyrics, it might interest people to know that the mercury or the spirit, uh, the reason it's called mercury in this case, has nothing to do with what we attribute quicksilver, you know, the metallic mercury, but it draws its meaning from that. And here's why. The spirit is what combines all of these three principles together. It is the amalgamizing nature of spirit, which in full alchemy or greater alchemy, mercury has in fact directly to do with quicksilver. And as everyone knows, when they're doing things like panning for gold, they use it as an amalgam because it is bringing things together. So there's the root of the idea. But in spagyrics, uh, one of the first things you learn how to do is to separate the three principles. But here's an interesting thing to understand. Did you know that in the plant version of alchemy, it is simply ethyl alcohol that is the spirit? In other words, you could go to your drugstore in, in, under the confines of modern science that we live in and pick ethyl alcohol up off the shelf. Of course, it's not going to be pure or the same quality of what you would get out of the plants themselves. But nonetheless, um, it is what it is. Um, and then you, you go down the road based on these ideas. And the reason I'm pointing it out is because in this kind of a process, you have a natural world, a plant. Nature made that. And you're breaking it down into its constituent components. But for the average modern mind, you're thinking, come on, man, spirit, soul, salt, what does all this mean? You really do have to reach and branch out and shift your contextual thinking that school and science and all the modern technology has forced you into and get back to a level where you can view nature in more of a uh, – I don't even know how to describe it, a broader view of these things. But anyhow, Jason, I don't want to wander too much, and I feel like I'm starting to wander. So the last thing we'll probably be able to get to here in hour one is a better description of Horus, because a lot of these terms we use these days seems to be drawn pretty heavily from the Egyptian. Horus was one of the most significant of the ancient Egyptian deities and was also, of course, a sun deity. At some point, it came to be said that his right eye was the sun and his left the moon. According to mainstream Egyptology, Horus was worshipped from at least the late prehistoric Egypt until the Ptolemaic Kingdom and into Roman Egypt. Different forms of Horus are recorded in history, and these are treated as distinct gods by Egyptologists. These various forms might possibly be different perceptions of the same multi-layered deity in which certain attributes or syncretic relationships are emphasized, not necessarily in opposition, 
but complementary to one another, consistent with how the ancient Egyptians viewed the multiple facets of reality. And again, this also comes down to the fact that the sun and the sky at different positions would take on different aspects with these gods. Horus was often depicted as a falcon, most likely a lanner falcon or a peregrine falcon, or sometimes as a man with just a falcon's head. The earliest recorded form of Horus is the tutelary deity of Neken in Upper Egypt, who is the first known national god, specifically related to the king, who in time came to be regarded as a manifestation of Horus in life and Osiris in death. The most commonly encountered family relationship describes Horus as the son of Isis and Osiris, and he plays a key role in the Osiris myth as Osiris's heir and the rival to Set, the murderer of Osiris. In another tradition, Hathor is regarded as his mother and sometimes as his wife. Horus served many functions, most notably being a god of kingship and, of course, the sky. And a lot of this stuff we still see affecting us today, the concept of Isis, Osiris, and Horus. If you look up the Osirian myths of what actually happened, how Set betrayed Osiris, chopped him up into little pieces, Isis found all the pieces and brought them back together, but couldn't find his sex organ and created a golden phallus for him, which is what he used to impregnate Isis to create Horus. So again, we have an earlier concept of some sort of mystical birth coming about, but this is also where the obelisk comes from. The obelisk is a representation of the golden phallus of Osiris, and we don't see those just in Egypt, do we? We see those all over the place. The Vatican and in the United States. So my main problem with when we get to places like this is there are so many different versions and kind of lines of study that have gone into this. For my part, I don't accept that Egypt is as ancient or as long ago as we've been told. And as I've mentioned on this show many times, the monoliths uh, fall into that same category for me. But clearly, uh, this is where all the modern Western traditions are pointing back to as the oldest source. As a matter of fact, how many people have seen a Masonic Bible where basically you're being shown um, Osiris and, and Horus and Isis as the triune deity in those, in those uh, Masonic Bibles? It's this archetype, this ancient archetype. You see, all these ideas came to be in every facet of our regular life. You know, the, the word horizon, where do we get that? Well, from Horus. There are people who would argue that even the word hour has a derivation there. But then when we start to talk about the ideas of the right eye was the sun, even these ideas are in common language. What do you call the student who is being taught by the teacher or the master? He is, of course, the pupil. Well, that comes directly from the eye, does it not? Um, these ideas, uh, however old they truly might be, I don't know. I don't accept that they're as ancient as we've been told. They are the foundational oldest things that get pointed to whether or not that's true. But again, I will add from my point of view that the ideas of alchemy or the natural sciences predate all this stuff to the beginning of time for all I know. Anyhow, Jason, we're close to the top of the hour. Is there anything you want to add? In hour two, we're going to break down that a little bit more and where a lot of these words and terms seem to come from. But I agree with you that there is not conclusive evidence about the actual antiquity of Egypt. And as a lot of the work you and I have been going through, we think that uh, history is definitely skewed in some way, shape or form, possibly a few hundred years, possibly much more. And that can throw this whole thing off. We don't know exactly where we truly are from a historical point of view. 
Yeah, there seems to be a real dividing line when we really did begin to separate away from nature in a big way. Um, we have thrown out that that might be the 1100s was the dividing line, and we have really little or no idea what came before that time. And places like the Jesuits were rewriting modern history all the way up to the modern time. And the example we use is look at all the false news and the false flag events. That's false history being written into a chronology that a hundred years from now, when someone picks up a textbook, they're going to read about these events as if they were factual, yet most of us living now understand that so many of them are false. This is the problem with the timeline narrative. And the real problem for me is we don't know exactly where it is. It does appear to be about a thousand years closer to us um, from the research we did with Fomenko and other people. Um, but we really have no idea what came before. What was the true history? What were the true roots of civilization? All these other things. I don't think we know these things. But anyhow, when we come back, we are going to get more into alchemy. And I'll try to add some more about spagyric since I'm such in the middle of doing it right now and preparing to actually, when it warms up here, again, grow herbs and do do uh, spagyric processes uh, to produce medicinal things out of plants that I've grown myself, harvested at particular times of the year in step with the natural cycle of the sun, the moon, and I guess what you would call the, uh, the constellations that play such a key role in helping us place where any given attribute of our natural environment is located. Anyhow, that does bring us to the top of the first hour for episode 91. At the posting of this episode, there will be 91 free hours of content on crow777radio.com. You can get it all of them without a login. It's just a web page. You hit them, you listen to what you like. If you'd like to join us and become a member, that's fantastic too. Anyhow, there it is. Hope to see you all at crow777radio.com. Cheers. <laughs> 